0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 16 through the end of the chapter. This is actually the the core of the book of Colossians, and it happens to be the uh, most debated uh, portion of the book of Colossians as well. So I think by the end you'll see why. What Jesus has done, and is doing, and will do for your salvation, looks really good on paper. <coughs> Listen to some of the credentials or the things that Paul Paul tells us that Christ has done. These are all taken from the first, uh, the earlier portions in Colossians. I didn't go anywhere else in Scripture. This is just the early portions of Colossians. Maybe eight eight things here, so just listen. In his own death on, on the cross, Jesus Christ severs you from your sin. Jesus Christ makes you alive together with him in his resurrection. In Jesus Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge of God. In Jesus Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you are, have been filled in him. In Jesus Christ, you have been forgiven all of your sins. The record of debt that stood against you has been canceled. In Jesus Christ, the spiritual forces of evil, the demonic realm that oppose you, have been stripped naked and exposed to open shame. Jesus is triumphant over all of them. In Jesus and through Jesus and to Jesus are all things, and he is the head over his body, the church. Boy, didn't that sound good on paper. The question that we must ask ourselves is whether or not that is is truly real, or is it simply words on paper? The reality is, and I speak with many of you, so I know this. I'm not thinking about anyone in particular, but you pray, and you think your prayers hit the ceiling. You read your Bible, and you don't feel God's presence. You ask God for help with your problems, and your problems only seem to get worse. You ask God to take away your fear, your bitterness, your insecurity, and yet there they are. You try even to love other people, but it comes out all wrong. And in your frustration, sometimes you become more self-absorbed than ever. And as a result, you think that there must be something more. Christ sounds good on paper. But when the rubber meets the road, it's really up to you to make things happen. Real growth depends on me. And I must make use of every resource around me. Instead of continuing to trust in a Savior that I cannot see, I begin to rely on things that I can see and before long we are not living by the faith that we had at first instead our religion looks more self-made than god made really is what the book of corinthians is, or colossians is all about paul wants the colossians to live every day By the same faith that they had at the beginning. But Paul also knows that as soon as you begin trying to do this. You will immediately hear other voices telling you that you're wrong. Where will these voices come from? From other members of the church. It sounds something like this. I could give you many different forms, but what Jesus has done is so wonderful. Now it is up to you to do for him. And let me tell you what you should do. And if you are not willing to do what has worked for me, then I will look down upon you and consider myself better than you. Paul has called upon the Colossians to rely upon Christ alone. For everything related to their salvation. And he knows. He's been around long enough. He knows. That other members of the church. Will judge everyone who tries to do this. And so in our passage today, Paul wants to help his hearers deal with this judgment from other believers. And it, the very first statement is really the primary application that Paul wants to, his hearers to engage in. So here it is, verse. is. I'll just read all the passage, but you'll see it in verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If or since with Christ you have died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations?" Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used. According to human precepts and teachings, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. May God bless his holy word. Make no mistake, the passing of judgment that Paul anticipates comes from other members of the church. Let that sink in. He says, do not let the other members of the church pass judgment on you. Now, number one, how can you stop somebody from judging you? You cannot. That's not Paul. what Paul's saying. I find it very interesting. Paul actually does not even confront the judges. Maybe another place, but not here. He doesn't say, quit judging. Basically says, I've given up on that. It's going to happen. Focus on you. Do not let them pass judgment on you. He also doesn't even say to the, the, um, to the uh, people he's talking to, make them stop judging you. Doesn't even say that, does he? Basically, Paul means this. Do not take their judgments into your heart. Do not let their judgments deeply affect you. I like this image. Let them roll like water off the back of a duck. Now, most of us have a very hard time doing this. We don't have very thick skin. We are deeply concerned about the opinions of others. It's not all bad. I mean, if you have no concern for the opinion of anybody, you're maybe a little bit psychotic. So you need to have some healthy, you know, but most of us are overly concerned about the opinions of others and what they think. And we are more driven by the opinions of others than we are by the truth of the gospel. <clears throat> now, Paul is going to try to help them not let this, these criticisms affect them. That's really what the best rest of the whole chapter is about. Some of the criticisms they take several different forms in this in this passage, so we'll try to deal with each of them. But some of the criticisms right there in verse 16 have to do with questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or Sabbath. Now, Paul is alluding to Old Testament practices. You can find these in Ezekiel 45, among other places. But these idea of keeping various uh, religious feasts, the idea of um, Abstention from certain foods, purifying yourself, all that is connected to temple worship. I find this very interesting because the Colossians aren't living anywhere near Jerusalem, right? They're not near that. They're in a congregation predominantly of Gentiles. They would have been somewhat familiar with the Old Testament, but there were some actual Jews who had come to know Christ, and so they're in their midst. Now, I don't want to blame all the judging on the Jews here. It doesn't have to be them. Paul doesn't just accuse them of this, but they their ideas have definitely seeped in. These believing Jews understood their Old Testament, and they understood that the high priest, when he wanted to get into the holy of holies, there were certain things he had to do. Right? He had to be prepared. He had to he had to go through certain purifications and. To get into that holy of holies. And so they put two and two together. Ah, Benji's having trouble experiencing intimacy with God. I know the problem. He's not preparing himself. Let's try to put things in place like the Old Testament priests. And if you do these things well enough, then then you can get into the holy of holies. Listen, the, these, these ideas weren't just in the Old Testament, and, and they had a purpose. We'll see that in a moment. But Greek and pagan mythology did the same things. And if you look at the religions of the world, they're constantly telling you some sort of activity that you must engage in in order to get that closeness with God. <clears throat> I still remember um, as a young Christian coming to Morganton, this is back in 1992, and uh, I couldn't find a job when I got here. Um, And so I started working through temporary agencies and they would, they would put you, you know, here for a day, there for two days, you'd be all over the place. I I worked all over the place during that time, it was really fun, triple community water. But I actually worked at the Coca-Cola plant for a day or two which is now sirens on the bypass. Some of you don't care about that. It's not interesting to the story. But anyway, um, I'll never forget, you know, I learned one thing at that plant. I never want to work in, in like production lines again. That, is, that was like, that'd be like almost the precursor to hell for me. I, I, I no way. Um, anyway, so I'm there and if you know you're, you know, you're doing the same thing and so you're talking to the guy next to you, you know, because you, don't really have to engage much anything besides just doing this over and over and over again. Um, and so he begins talking to me about Christianity. And he says to me, have you been baptized with the Holy Spirit? Now, coming from Ohio, I wasn't even sure what he was talking about. I'm like, what? But it was obvious to me that there was something that he thought I was missing out on. And it just so happened that that period in my life was one of my dry periods. I've had many dry periods, but that was one of my dry periods in experiencing closeness with God. And somehow he was implying to me that my faith in Christ was not enough, that there was something else. If I wanted to know true Christianity, I had to do something else. And he could tell me what to do. Now, fortunately, he never convinced me, and I moved on to some other job and went out. But I but I began to actually question, well, am I lacking something? Just the suggestion of that was enough. And I went into a tailspin trying to figure this out for a while. See, he was judging me. And he was telling me that I was missing out. And that it's a natural thing in all of us to not want to be lacking. In Paul's day, someone would whisper to other believers, Are you abstaining from these foods? Because if you're not, God won't give you the fullness of his experience in the, new, in the sanctuary. Oh, you're, you're not attending this feast? Oh, well, of course, those, those feasts are like portals into a closer, holy relationship with God. And Paul's saying, don't buy into that kind of thinking. Don't let their judgments work down into your soul such as you give them credence in your own soul. Maybe I haven't done something right. Paul says... About These particular things in verse 16 and then in verse 17 he explains these are only a shadow of the things to come the substance belongs to Christ. Now these things are the ceremonial commands of the Mosaic law not eating certain foods observing various days those sorts of things Paul says those are shadows. Now you understand what a shadow is right unless you're a cat shadows have no substance. You ever seen shadow? The cat's like chasing this shadow around. He thinks he's getting something, right? So unless you're a cat, shadows don't have any substance. You can see a shadow of this on the ground right there. Okay, this has substance. The shadow does not. And Paul's saying that all of these things are nothing more than shadows. The substance, the reality is found in Christ himself. And now that you have the substance, see, prior to Christ coming, the shadows actually point you to Christ. You can see the shadow and you think, oh, what is it talking about? What is it talking about? And it's pointing you to the Messiah. But now that the Messiah has come, even the shadows are worthless. Basically says anything having to do with the ceremonies of the Old Testament all point to Christ. Now, I have to take just a moment, and I'll try to do this quickly, but um, to talk about the weekly Sabbath, because as Presbyterians, we do believe that we should keep the weekly Sabbath, that it is binding on New Testament believers. We believe in Ten Commandments and not Nine Commandments, those sorts of things. Um, and I'm just going to like quickly say just a couple comments. If you want more, I can... We, I did a whole study on the Sabbath. We can talk more about it. But... Um, Colossians 2 should inform your understanding of the weekly sabbath. It should help you. Now I'm convinced that the weekly sabbath still has value for us. And there's a few reasons why. One, if you look at the, in the gospels, Jesus goes to great lengths to correct the pharisaical understanding of the sabbath. If there's not going to be any application for the Sabbath moving forward, I wonder if he wouldn't have saved a lot of time and just said, hey, that's going to be quickly gone, don't worry about it. But instead, he takes a lot of time to explain how to rightly keep the Sabbath to his people. Um, Secondly, is that the Sabbath has multiple functions. There are some aspects of the Sabbath that are pointing us to Christ, but some aspects of the Sabbath are just you need rest, you're a part of this creation, you work six days, you have one day off. I mean, it's, it's, it's just a creational thing. And so Sabbath, I think, is more than just a foreshadow, has multiple functions. And then, and then lastly, I do believe that the Sabbath points us to rest, the rest that we have in Christ, but I also think it points us to our eternal rest. And so that's still future out there ahead of us. And so I think it does have some relevance in that way as, as well. But that being said, there are aspects of the Sabbath and the Old Testament keeping of Sabbaths that are foreshadows that have been done away with. Uh, if you understand, there was more than just the weekly Sabbath in the Old Testament. They had all kinds of holy days that had Sabbaths attached to them. And I don't know of any Sabbatarian that actually goes back into the Old Testament and tries to figure out all those and keep all of those Sabbaths. So in some sense, we've dropped everything but the weekly Sabbath. Um, Also, we all recognize that the Sabbath, many of the laws of the Sabbath were tied to the Old Testament temple worship. I mean, it's things like you couldn't travel more than a day's walk. I mean, it's like, I mean, most of you have traveled further than that to get here today. So uh, anyway, there's things that just about the Sabbath that do not apply to the worldwide context in which we live. So more can be said, and I'm not going to say it right now, but I do think that this passage, at a minimum... Should prevent even the most ardent Sabbatarian, someone who believes in the Sabbath, from thinking that keeping the Sabbath is a human means of attaining deeper spiritual experience. If you start using your Sabbath as a a portal to get to God, you're missing out on the substance. You've turned it into a human work. I think it's happened many times in our history in the church becomes part of a man-made religion and you look down on other people because they don't keep it quite the way you do. The substance of our faith is Jesus, not the Sabbath. All right, let's keep moving on. Man-made religion is what we're talking about. One of it was this preparation for going into the the temple, sanctuary, But also, there's other ones. In verse 18, Paul says, let no one disqualify you. Same kind of mindset of uh, judging and disqualify. It's like the other Christians around you are acting like an umpire in a baseball game, telling you whether you're in or out. That's the kind of mindset you should be thinking. Um, And uh, of course, we know umpires get it wrong, right? It's so great with modern technology, right? In the old days, you could, you could argue with an umpire. You'd be like, that was a strike. No, it wasn't. It was that you know, ball back and forth. Nowadays, on the TV, they have this little line. And then they give you the replay, and they show you the trajectory of the ball. And you know if it's like a quarter inch outside of the line, that's clearly a ball. And sometimes the umpires do get it wrong, and you see, you know. Anyway, it, it's, uh, Jesus isn't thinking about baseball, but I do. Um, Uh, But basically, people are playing umpires. And they're telling you what was good and bad, whether you're in or out. And Paul says, don't let them do this. Don't let your faith, your rising or falling, be based on the opinion of another Christian. In this situation, it's not so much ceremonies as asceticism and the worship of angels. Going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind. Modern world we live in. Wonderful. Um, See, in, in our day, you don't have to actually tell people that such and such is wrong. You just have to suggest it. Now, what is asceticism? Asceticism is the the disciplined renouncing of some desire. The disciplined renouncing of some desire. Now, that, that can sound good, and it can be good. But there's a huge difference between putting sin to death, denying sin, and just denying legitimate desires. Right? You, should, you should fight against the sin of drunkenness, but then you should not necessarily say that drinking of all alcohol is evil. Danny preached that to us last week with uh, Jesus turning the water to wine. Asceticism says, okay, I'm going to renounce this, and I'm going to take disciplined control over this legitimate desire, For the purpose of thinking that controlling this desire will stop the indulgence of my sin. Now, you know the end of the story. I just read in 23, they do not stop the indulgence of sin. I'll talk more about that in a minute. Now, I don't want to pick just on the Catholic Church, but I'll give you a Catholic example and an evangelical example of this. The classic Catholic example is Lent. I'm going to give up something that is a legitimate desire in order to prove that I am not controlled by this desire and in preparation for the experience of Easter. I'm not going to say that it has no value to any Catholic, but I think this is the kind of thing that Jesus was saying don't do, don't buy into. I think the same thing occurred somewhat when I was on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ. Uh, Bill Bright was our founder and director of Campus Crusade, and I s- distinctly remember he had decided that he was going to go on a forty-day liquid fast. And I think it was—I I think he's a—you know—had general, genuine motivation. He was seeking greater blessing from God. It's not for me to judge him in that, but I have not been. Inclined to follow his advice, his counsel, or his action. He actually wanted us to try to do that as staff members. Nor have you ever heard me encourage you to do that. Say something like, man, if you really want a deeper experience with God, then fast for 40 days? <clears throat> Throughout history, monks would often engage in Asceticism, and I think this is probably the, the best way. To, I hope this is the, the illustration that see, sits in your mind. When you leave here, there's a, a, a saint called Saint Simeon. He actually had a pillar constructed. You know, it's, it was about the size of my pulpit, only about probably up to the top of the roof there, all the way up. I don't know how he got up there. I don't know how they got food to him. I, a lot of things I don't know. It is said that he stayed on the top of that pillar. Take a guess. How long? 37 years. 37 years. Some monks slept on beds of nails. Again, I'm not doubting his Christianity. I'm not making any. I'm just saying this is others purposely used itchy clothing. Some denied themselves sleep. The basic idea is if you can deny yourself in this sense, then you should be able to overcome the sin. And it sounds good, but it's entirely wrong. Paul is not against an individual Christian practicing some sort of self-denial. And I'll give you some examples of where I would say appropriate. If you're struggling with drunkenness and you choose to abstain from all alcohol... Great. But that personal abstinence is not a rule for all believers. If you begin to make it that rule, then it inevitably leads to pride. You look down upon other people. You have a form of false humility, which is what this text is arguing against. When you think that your form of asceticism enables you to enter into a higher form of spirituality, then you are denying what God has given for you to enjoy. I love John Calvin in this. Throughout the history of the church, Christians have been tempted to devalue the richness of creation as if it is more spiritual to live a life devoid of beauty and music and literature and painting and all the other things man has produced out of God's bounty. Should the Lord have attracted our eyes to the beauty of the flowers and our sense of smell to pleasant odors, and should it then be a sin to drink them in? I love that. It's not by accident that it was the prophets of Baal during the time of Elijah that were doing all kinds of asceticism trying to get their gods to do something for them, and Elijah just prays. asceticism is not the means to greater spirituality next Paul talks about the worship of angels and the the error is probably not that the Colossians were outright saying I'm going to worship an angel that's not what they were doing because otherwise Paul I think would have hit him a lot harder it was probably something like this angels seraphs are around the throne of God worshiping God all the time and I need help From the angel to get there with them. They're going to be my guide into this closeness with God. They're going to help me. Hmm, as if Christ is not enough? And so what happens is these Christians were actually giving more attention to the angels than they were to Christ. Like I said, Jesus sounds good on paper. But if you want to hit the rubber meets the road, then you need a good angel to help you. And these umpires go into great details. Look, I was talking to this angel and this he helped me get into this experience after I uh, didn't eat food for a week. And, you know, I had all this stuff and going on all these visions, all these details. And you know that that gets you right. It, it's not the same thing in our day, but people say, hey, I did this and this and this. And if you'll only take my plan, you'll have the same victory I have. Paul says that only works to puff you up. Paul knows. You know why Paul knows? Because he had the visions. And he was puffed up. And he says, oh, and by the way, the Lord gave me a thorn in my flesh to humble me. Think about that. Greater spiritual experience can lead to arrogance and pride. And when you achieve this experience through human means, it becomes a self-made religion. And Paul says in verse 19, you are no longer holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. Now, I want you to see things in here. This is It's fun how the word of God constantly is showing you new things. But but I've read this many times and struggled with it. But I never got this. Holding fast to the head from whom the whole body. One problem with man-centered religion and man-centered experiences is that they are not experienced by the whole body. Think about that. In fact, you're not even concerned for the whole body. I want to know Christ. I could care less if Danny Beck gets an experience with God. I want to know him. Can you imagine if the criteria for you experiencing God was to sit on a pillar for 37 years? And Paul envisions a growth among the whole body. He says the whole church is connected to the head and the whole church is being nourished by the head. You see, self-made religion ultimately disconnects you from Christ. And self-made religion makes you disconnected from the rest of the body of Christ. Why? Because you're being critical of everyone else. And then he says at the end of that in verse 19, he says, oh, but what I want is a growth that comes from God. That's what I want. I don't want one that you can produce. You see, otherwise only the strong could make it. You want to produce a religion that only the best of the best can make it like the Marines? God teaches us that his power is made perfect in your weakness. And this is why Jesus doesn't say, you've got to do all these things. He says, you believe in me and I will crucify you. Look at verse 20. If with Christ or since with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? This is the second time that Paul has used the word elemental. The first was back in verse 8. And the ESV translates the word elemental spirits, and I think that's a legitimate translation because it implies the demonic realm, these spiritual beings of evil that stand against us. But I think that, the, that, that this, this elementals is more than that because it also includes the Old Testament shadows. Those are the elementals. And I also think it includes the elemental forces of nature. All of those elementals, they're all meaningless. All elementary. And I thought this as I was studying this, I hope it's helpful. In the first creation, God speaks the world into existence. He creates the elements and then they they he he orders the forces of nature. In the new creation, do you know what is the new creation is built upon? You know what the first seed of the new creation is? The body of Christ. The body of Christ. Not the church. Him physically when he rose from the dead. The new creation, the only thing that's really physically of the new creation that exists is the body of Christ. It's like a seed that goes into the ground and a huge oak tree and you are a part of the oak tree. See, Paul thinks theoretically, I know, but it, it just blows my mind. If something in this creation could achieve the fullness of salvation for which you yearn, then the incarnation would not have even had to happen. See, God says, David, you'll never crucify yourself. So I'm going to unite you to Christ and I'm going to crucify you in Christ. I'm going to do this. When you die, you leave this world. All the forces that are playing upon you right now, done. Done. Physical ailments, physical struggles, mental disabilities, diseases, all these things done, gone. All of the tuggings of your sinful nature, part of this world. You die, gone. Do you struggle with fear? Do you struggle with anxiety? You cannot seem to shake it? That belongs to this world. Do you struggle being gentle and kind? Harshness and cruelty belong to this world. Do you struggle with gender confusion? Belongs to this world. Are you tired? Are you depressed? Are you bitter? All of these things belong to this world. When you leave this world, the clutches that they have on you are done. Well, Paul is basically telling them, you've already left this world. Look at it. He says, why, as if you were still alive in the world, I want to say, well, I am alive in the world. He says, no, you're not. When Jesus rose up from the tomb, he no longer belongs to this present creation, and you went with him. If you're in Christ, you went with him. They haven't physically left this world. Paul's not an idiot. He's not denying the obvious. He's just saying that Jesus, your union with Jesus, is more than a piece of paper. It's a reality. You actually are in Christ, you are with Him. In chapter 3, he's going to say you're already seated in the heavenlies. It's true. This is the reality that Paul wants you to live in every day. Even while you continue to struggle with all the things that I spoke about just a bit ago. Evil and corruption are everywhere around you, and they're still very much present in your old nature. But on the other hand, done. You're up there, you belong to the new creation. Now, if you hear nothing else from this sermon, and I think you probably hear a lot of things, but if you hear nothing else, this is the, the, in my opinion, the statement that you have to keep telling yourself. Jesus Christ and your being united to Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection is the only force powerful enough to overcome evil. Amen. That's it. Amen. If you start reducing it to the things that you can do, you're taking a knife to a gunfight. Jesus said as much as this I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, you will feel like you are getting your hiney kicked all across the pavement. But take heart, I have overcome the world. You see, the problem is, and this is, I think, really the problem I want a victory that belongs to this world. I want a victory now so that I can have life in this world. I don't really want to die to this life. Big picture. Paul wants you, as a part of your sanctification, to engage in effort to overcome your sin. But how do you know the difference between self-effort and truly spirit-produced effort? That's a hard question. I don't really get that all the time. and That's probably one of the things that you're going to wrestle with as you leave here. Jesus talks about cutting your arm off if it causes you to sin and gouging out your eye. Like there should be a desperation to try to overcome sin in this life. And sometimes our desperate struggle to overcome sin will lead us to impose certain restrictions upon ourselves. It is appropriate for the drug addict to want to move to another town so he doesn't fall back into sin. That's a restriction. Those triggers move him into sin. If you're consumed with self-image issues, body shame, it might be a good thing to disconnect from social media. If you're full of constant fear over political issues going on, it might be a good thing to quit watching the news every day. Some of those restrictions are good and uh, healthy. But when you start thinking that those things are the substance of the gospel, you're losing Christ. If human activities could produce freedom, then Christ died for nothing. They have the appearance of wisdom. I know this because I've done it. But they don't have the power to overcome sin. They are band-aids to the problem. You can't treat the band-aid as if it's the solution. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. That becomes the essence of your religion. And where is Christ? Self-discipline can be, not saying it always is, can be a form of feeding the flesh. Otherwise, why would it lead to such arrogance and pride and criticism of others? 22 and 23. These have the appearance of wisdom, promoting self-made religion, asceticism, severity of the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Now, Maybe moving to another town would help the drug addict to not fall back into the ruts of drug use. I can tell you this. It's not going to fix his indulgence in the flesh. I love... I was talking to a young man, grew up in this church, uh, living in another town for this very thing. He says, you know what? Every day I feel like I've just traded one addiction for another one. No longer doing drugs, he's walking with God, but he's still struggling with the indulgence of the flesh. The monk who spent 37 years, I wish I could bring St. Simeon down here at the end of that 37 years, I can guarantee you he was still struggling with the flesh. Now, the reality is, I hope this balances things. You have to live with Band-Aids in this life. You know what I mean by that? Like, like God has not given me my new body yet. There are times I have to put a, a knee brace on my knee. That's a lot of what the Christian life is. You do things to just make it, to cope in this life. Your anxiety will not be completely fixed in this life. In some sense, you learn to live with it. You put the Band-Aids on. You try to you know, work it so that you're not so consumed. But you're always thinking to yourself, oh, that which my heart yearns is true victory. And that's only found in Christ. So here's my conclusions. Could be a bunch of them, but here's a three When you embrace personal restrictions on yourself, please don't make them the rule for others. Secondly, remember that Jesus is the head of the whole body, not just you. A healthy thing you might want to think about is you look at the body, you look at the, it's just in your own mind. I don't even care how you how you discern this. Just think about who is the weakest member in this church. You know, you, you might have, oh man, that guy's not doing well at all. Jesus died for them. Not just the strong. Thirdly, and this is the, where we started. When other Christians play umpire over your soul, don't take their judgments to heart. The substance of all true religion begins uh, uh, is found in Christ, in Christ alone. Your union with Him through faith alone. Amen.